Hello, citizens of the internet. Welcome back to Indirect Message, a podcast about the cultural impact of the internet. I'm Lacey Green. Thanks for joining me. Well, I don't have any housekeeping today, so let's dive in. Chapter 1. What do you meme? Have you ever noticed how, when we hop online or on the phone, we kind of start speaking a different language. The rules of spelling and grammar and punctuation tend to go out the window to the collective cringe of English teachers everywhere. On most platforms, communication is abbreviated, giving rise to hundreds of acronyms like AF, RN, and JFC. Here, we speak the language of images, GIFs, short videos, and hashtags. And then there are the memes. How would you describe a meme to someone who's never heard of them? I'll take a stab. A meme usually refers to text on an image, but a meme could also be a video, a tweet, or a gif. Double rainbow, oh my god. It's a double rainbow all the way. Laurel. Laurel. All your base are belong to us. Those who study memetics, yes, there is a formal study of memes, take things one step further. Memes aren't just any old image with text slapped on it, and it's not just a video that's gone viral either. A meme is an image that's gone viral that is then altered over and over and over again. So a meme can kind of be thought of like a literal virus. It's an infectious idea that spreads between our computer screens and our brains. Rather than infecting our bodies, they infect our culture, shaping it and transforming it every moment of every day. At least if you ask the scientists, the concept of a meme was first coined by a biologist. You may have heard of him, Dr. Richard Dawkins, in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. I wanted to make the point that although the entire book had been based on genes, maybe we don't have to even go to other planets to find an alternative to DNA. Maybe there's something already here on this planet which is showing the signs of being a kind of forerunner of a new sort of evolution. Memes, cultural replicators, the cultural equivalent of a gene, the cultural equivalent of DNA, which is anything that's copied, anything that's imitated, anything that spreads around like a virus. Um, it spreads around the culture. I whistle it, you hear it, hear it whistle it, you go out in the street, whistle it, somebody else hears it, whistles it. Um, it spreads like a, like a virus, and that's all you need in order to get natural selection going. Um, so I called it a meme. So it doesn't exactly rhyme with gene, but it's sort of, sort of, it's sort of short and, and sounds vaguely similar. So why do some memes spread across the world and others die immediately? Most memes have three essential elements. The first, it must be easy to copy. My cousins Matthew and Max nominated me to do the ice bucket challenge. Here it goes. The second, when it spreads, it has to spread rapidly. And three, it must have staying power. If it doesn't survive through shares, it goes extinct. 
The vast majority of memes fall into this category. An example of a meme that clearly has all three of these elements is the Be Like Bill meme. This meme taps into shared frustrations about how people behave on social media. It shows a stick figure sitting at the computer. Bill is on the internet. Bill sees something that offends him. Bill moves on. Bill is smart. Be like Bill. The popularity of the original Be Like Bill meme suggests that many people feel this way. Since then, the meme has seen thousands of mutations, with many people offering their own passive-aggressive criticisms of social media behavior. Bill is on Facebook. Bill is a vegan. Bill doesn't tell everybody about it. Bill is smart. Be like Bill. The Be Like Bill meme has since spread all over the world, with Be Like Jose in Mexico or Be Like Rashid in Malaysia. Through the lens of biology, the question of why some memes become so popular starts to look a little less random. Successful memes tend to have a low barrier to entry and speak to our collective conscience. They tap into a shared experience, a feeling or idea about the world. They might allow us to vent or to laugh with irony, satire, or a wholesome dose of goofiness. While some memes, like Pepe the Frog, have managed to find themselves at the center of a few controversies, I would argue that on the whole, sharing memes is a pro-social activity. It helps us connect over experiences that we might not otherwise have words for. It establishes a new bond between every person who likes or shares a particular meme. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing. Chapter 2. The Very First Meme I was trying to remember the first meme I ever saw last night, and while I can't be totally sure, I think it was when I first received a chain letter through email. Do you guys remember those? Dear friends, please do not take this for a junk letter. Bill Gates is sharing his fortune. For every person that you forward this email to, Microsoft will pay you $245. Ah yes, good old Bill Gates just giving out his money to randoms on the internet again. Along with promises of money and fortune, some chain letters mutated, promising good luck. Others still threatened you with death if you didn't forward to 10 people before midnight. Then came the chain mail to protect you from chain mail. This is the immunity dog. It will protect you from your mother will die in her sleep tonight if you don't reply to this and other likewise posts. Take good care of him. He's a good dog. I have to confess, you guys, I never shared these. And, I mean, it's kind of a mystery how so many of us who didn't share are still alive. In true meme fashion, chainmail actually didn't start with emails, and it didn't end with them either. As a kid, I remember getting a letter, a snail mail letter, asking me to mail $5 with the promise of receiving $20 in return. These types of chain letters actually became so pervasive in the 90s that the U.S. Postal Service ended up banning them. But look, these things can't be stopped. That Bill Gates chain mail actually went viral again on Facebook as recently as last year. But what was the first meme in internet history? Some argue it was a cat picture or the smiley face that eventually mutated into an emoji. But there's another curious meme that memetics experts and enthusiasts sometimes point to as the internet's first, Godwin's Law. It's curious to me because Godwin's Law is an idea, not an image. It's an idea about how we should engage with each other online that has since crystallized and shaped heated discussions for 30 years. 
Godwin's law states that the longer an internet discussion goes on, the higher the probability that someone will compare someone or something to Hitler, at which point the discussion or thread is over. In 1990, Godwin wrote, In countless Usenet newsgroups I frequented, the labeling of posters or their ideas as similar to Nazis or Hitler-like was a recurrent and often predictable event. It was the kind of thing that made you wonder how debates had ever occurred without having that handy rhetorical hammer. As examples, he cited discussions about the Second Amendment, where gun control advocates were warned that Hitler wanted to ban personal weapons too. Or in debates about abortion, pro-lifers would accuse pro-choicers of mass murder, worse than the Nazi death camps. Godwin found the Nazi meme frustrating. It was stifling honest debate with an offensive trivialization of the Holocaust. So he set out to mutate the meme once again, this time by planting a counter-meme of sorts to criticize those who were derailing conversations. After planting what's now called Godwin's Law in his forums, Godwin writes of a notable drop in Nazi comparisons. Noticing this success, he seems to have had a bit of an internal crisis. He writes, If it's possible to generate effective counter-memes, is there any moral imperative to do so? When we see a bad or false meme go by, should we take pains to chase it with a counter-meme? Do we have an obligation to improve our informational environment? This power to do good may also be a power to do ill. Anyone on the net has the power to affect stock prices or cause an international health panic. I gotta admit, guys, reading this 30 years in the future feels a little bit like reading a prophecy. He concludes that the solution to harmful memes is to craft counter-memes like he did, to put things in perspective. The time may have come to commit ourselves to mimetic engineering, crafting good memes to drive out the bad ones. Chapter 3. Becoming a Meme Next up, I sit down with the real-life meme and one of the first major memes on YouTube, Mr. Tazon Day. We discuss what it was like to become a meme and the existential crises that can follow it. Before we begin, I wanted to give a shout-out to Sweet Pea Dating App. Yep, we made it official, guys. Sweet Pea is the official partner of Indirect Message. And I gotta say, we're pretty compatible. Instead of building an app based on addictive algorithms that keep people swiping for hours, Sweet Pea is focused on helping us build quality connections and have meaningful conversations. So by the time you go on your first date, it feels more like your third. Check it out for yourself by downloading Sweet Pea on the App Store. Okay, let's hop on with Tay. You know, my mom listened to NPR every day when I was a child, is she would get ready in the morning, I'd hear Carl Castle. He'd be like, it's National Public Radio News with Carl Castle. And then I saw Carl Castle on TV once and he didn't look anything like the person I had visualized. <laughs> That's the weird thing about radio, is you sort of, or audio in general, you sort of come up with this idea of, of what a person should look like in your mind. I feel like sometimes people are surprised by you, actually. Well, no, that's a, that's a big part of, I don't know if I'd say my mystique, but at least how I came into public in the period of time when I think a lot of YouTube talents came into public attention sort of as a novelty, as a circus phenomenon, as YouTube being this place where 
uh, the amazing and the unprecedented and the unusual and the strange just kind of came together in this corner of the internet. And that's how YouTube made its disruption in 2006, 2007. So what was the experience like for you? Well, there's a question of like, how, how did I feel about it then? I felt lost in the moment that it was blowing up in the moment that I was hot, so to speak. And, you know, everyone wanted to contact me and three of the four major labels wanted at the time wanted to sign me. And there was this big hoopla. Um, firstly, I didn't have a lot of breadcrumbs to follow because I couldn't look and say, hey, what did Rebecca Black do? What did uh, Antoine Dodson do? It was uncharted territory. Why do you think Chocolate Rain went so viral? I had a voice body mismatch, obviously. Uh, you know, people didn't expect to see this very young looking person. Uh, yeah, I, I joke that I look like Bruno Mars. I sound like Barry White and I move <laughs> like Mr. Bean. Uh, <laughs> people just didn't expect that combination. It is unexpected. And I think, you know, obviously I wrote it as a political ballad about institutional racism, but I knew immediately as it was going viral that that is not how it was being received. <laughs> that it was being received instead as, hey, that's the catchy song that my two-year-old can't stop singing at bedtime. Yeah, you know, it hadn't really occurred to me that there might be a deeper meaning to Chocolate Rain until I actually talked to you about it. And you, you pointed out to me that it was about racism. Mm. <laughs> so, so you're one of those people in my comments. If you comment, you're like, when I was young, this just didn't mean anything to me. But now that I'm older. <laughs> Guilty as charged. How do you feel about the fact that maybe most people didn't really absorb what you were trying to say? I kind of got in this mode where Chocolate Rain blew up and I wasn't sure, was it blowing up as a joke? Was it blowing up in a way that was serious? Uh, initially, I chose not to be polemic about it. I chose not to seize it as sort of a Malcolm X moment or a moment to be a political activist because I felt like uh, people who disagreed with the message of the song <laughs> didn't necessarily know what the message of the song was. And if I started preaching that mm. to them, they'd be like, well, I used to like it. I used to just be like questioning what's the meaning of chocolate rain. But now that you're telling me, <laughs> uh, you know, it's almost kind of like I'm I'm sure there were, you know, conservative Christians who were singing uh, Michael Jackson's. Uh, all I have to say is uh, they don't really care about us is, <laughs> you know, they were driving to church in their cars and their kids were popping their heads to it. And they weren't actually thinking, gosh, this is a song that is seriously critiquing my life and my role in contributing to uh, criminal justice, uh, criminal injustice. And so there was also kind of that question of what is my role as an artist? <laughs> uh, and I really struggled with that probably for about the first 10 years, the chocolate rain uh, was released. I really avoided um, claiming it. Have you thought about doing more advocacy or I guess talking more about no, it? No, because then it's like, then it feels like it's a liability. Like, I don't know. What do you mean? I feel like it, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be political. But then it's then like, does that does that matter anymore? Like, are all the old rules out the window, Lacey? 
I remember the ethos of YouTube when when Chocolate Rain went viral and and all of these videos, the early viral videos are happening. And for me, like my content has always been somewhat political. And I always remember feeling a little bit resentful that nobody would talk about it. Right. And and now we're in this period where literally everyone is talking about it all the time. I don't know what my place is in that, Lacey. I don't know if I want to be a faction in that Hunger mm-hmm. Games. I always wanted to be the Pied Piper that that led everybody together, that unified everybody. I wanted to, you know, <laughs> the brown rats, the green rats, the purple rats, <laughs> the you know, the upside down rats, the square rats, whatever type of rat you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I. That's always what I wanted to do. Um, you can still kind of do that with music. It can still exist in a space where two different people who might not like each other in real life and might not agree on very much in real life will listen to the same song and they will love that song and believe that it speaks to them. You're so right. Music is the last. It's the last bastion of of peace and safety (laughs) on YouTube. But I want to talk about you as as Tay, as a person, as someone who went viral to an entire country, to the entire world, through your camera in a time where that wasn't really something that was happening to people. I remember when all the YouTubers started moving to L.A., there were like 30 of us at the end of 2008 who had moved to L.A., and you bumped into another person who made money on YouTube. It was like, hello, long-lost alien brother. You are the chosen one, just like me. Our families don't understand. Our friends and coworkers don't understand, but you I can talk to. It sounds like that was maybe a little bit lonely. Well, my life is lonely. I've just always been different. I've I've always been alien, Lacey. Hmm. What do you mean by that? I just, I've always, there's always been something that feels fundamentally different about me that causes my experience and the way I experience the world to be different than a lot of other people. I think that's what I struggled with in doing improv comedy. I often found that in improvising comedy skits, the points of reference of everyday experiences that people kind of draw from, I've just, um, I've had pretty unique experiences. Do you think it messes you up? Ooh. I don't know. I think it messed me up. I think other memes and other people who've come into public attention handled it better than I did. I think I handled it poorly insofar as as not being smart about my business and being able to separate the needs of the business from my loneliness and my personal desires as a person. I don't know. I think Uh, you're being a little hard on yourself because you're kind of talking about the commodification of who you are. And that's part of what the Internet does so well and what the Internet does so horribly, uh, particularly with regard to memes. Right. It turns these bizarre, fun, quirky, weird sort of shooting stars in this giant digital space into major cash cows. Um, I think there's something dehumanizing. Gosh, I wish I was a major cash cow. Is that is that your biggest regret <laughs> that it it wasn't a good business decision? Um, I think as I get older, and the question legitimately question uh, crosses my mind of 
how do I support myself into old age and yeah, not end up in poverty and old and alone and just without any success or, or worse? I think I think about that more. Maybe you, you, you do have this critique that's probably accurate that I'm being hard on myself. Is it's almost like I feel like I still haven't done fame right, Lacey. I feel like <laughs> time went by and I drifted off into kind of being this old man, this senior meme, <laughs> this uh, this old dude in the college internet bar, and I'm still wanting to do my first time right. Do you think that becoming internet famous affected your identity in some way? Like, how did it affect your life? Something I often say in interviews is that before public attention, I could sing loudly on the street or sing loudly in my apartment. And after fame, I went from being some guy to being that guy, the chocolate rain guy who's singing on the street. And so I lost a certain sense of anonymity. And I think the fact that I've always felt a little bit off, a little bit awkward, a little bit different from everybody my entire life um, created a situation where one of my childhood dreams and one of my lasting life desires was just to be able to feel normal. I think there was a period in my YouTubing where I started to see myself filtered through, you know, how other people see me or filtered through my YouTube persona of Lacey Green. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and there's like this identity crisis that happens, right? Like, who am I? Like, everyone sees me as this person and everyone sees me through this lens, but I'm actually this and I'm that, you know, whatever it might be people kind of decide who you are for you. And I think that's an incredibly dehumanizing feeling that can leave people feeling lost and is one of the more difficult struggles of, of going viral. How do you maintain your sense of autonomy, your sense of agency and independence and clarity about who you are when there are millions of people telling you who you are? Yeah. I think it helps to ground yourself in real relationships with actual people who kind of yes. form a support network. I think my biggest fear also is someone who meets me in real life having liked some of my content or with this perception of who I am that they like. <laughs> and then they hang out with me and they actually get to know the real me. And it's like, wait, I, I'm sorry I don't live up to that. Like there's some kind of expectation that's been created that you can't live up to. I don't know. I guess it's like, it, it, I feel like that's the case with any childhood idol though, or any idol of yours. Like, you know, Brent Spiner who plays Lieutenant Commander Data is an idol of mine. Uh, I grew up watching really all the Star Trek, the next generation actors. I think that if I was stuck in an elevator with Patrick Stewart or Brent Spiner for four or five days, you know, maybe I'd be sick of them after that four or five days and I'd kind of want <laughs> I'd kind of want my own space. I don't know uh, if there's anyone that I could be stuck in an elevator with for that long and still like. Well, that's a point then. Like, so we're all fundamentally <laughs> unlikable to some extent. Am I in this anxiety where I'm trying to hide the parts of me that are fundamentally unlikable as long as possible? I mean, that that's always been a dynamic in human relationships is the need to be accepted, to feel a sense of belonging. Um, do you think that the internet is, is it making it worse, more exaggerated, more erratic? Here's what I feel. I feel like the silent majority of human beings 
do not see themselves as influencers or celebrities or you know, someone who has big social media numbers. And they're kind of trying to figure out where they fit in a world that is dominated by those things. If you're a doctor, well, you better build a social media following about you know your medical opinions. If you're a gardener, you better build a social media following about your gardening business and have a fan page and reach out and develop clients that way. Whatever you're doing, it seems like there are fewer and fewer safe islands. We're all kind of pushed into being social media brands if we want to uh, raise our level of success, uh, level of importance, so to speak. Well said, my dude. Um, before we wrap it up, I got to ask, what is your favorite meme? I really struggle with favorites. It's like my confessing that my favorite pizza topping is pineapple, which is a very controversial thing. Uh, I think Andrew Wong's meme, uh, Pink Fluffy Unicorns Dancing on Rainbows. I always love that song. That's among the memes that I like. <laughs> Pink Fluffy Unicorns Dancing on Rainbows. Well, that's about as non-controversial as one can get, I would say. Yeah, but then, like, is my life held back by the fact that I play it so safe? Hmm. You tell me. On the next episode of Indirect Message. I don't come from a perspective on free speech that's like, oh, you know, I, I don't like what you have to say, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. Like, I will absolutely not fight to the death for Nazi speech. What I do believe is that authority really can't be trusted on these things and that we've never seen a form of censorship that solves a societal problem. We discuss the absolute minefield of freedom of speech online. Ooh, this is bound to be a juicy one. Thanks so much for joining the conversation, guys. I'll be back October 16th.